Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that through the teaching of your word we could would come to understand the great gift you have given to every believer in our Lord Jesus, the gift of your spirit. Uh, we pray that we would know the work of your spirit in our own lives and that through that work uh, we would have confidence in you and confidence that you'll fulfil your good purposes for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we need to talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we need to talk about the Spirit three reasons because firstly, as we'll see, the Spirit is the great gift Christ gives to all who are his, who believe in him. And we should be convinced of that and understand the greatness of his gift to us. Uh, secondly, we need to talk about the Spirit because there is amongst the wider Christian community lots of talk about the Spirit. And some of that talk is confusing about how you know you have the Spirit by always associating the Spirit's coming with tongues. And some of that talk unhelpfully distorts our expectation of the Spirit's work in our lives by a disproportionate emphasis on some activities and gifts. As a result, believers in Jesus can be left feeling poor where we should know ourselves to be rich, uncertain where the Spirit is given to assure and neglectful of the Spirit's main work in our life. So we need to talk about the Spirit. And thirdly, we need to talk about the Spirit so that we can know for ourselves that encouragement and the assurance of the Spirit's work in us and stir one another up to confidently give ourselves to that work. We need to talk about the Spirit. And today, a Pentecost Sunday, the day Christians remember the first coming of the Spirit on Jesus' followers, we're going to start that conversation by looking at Paul's arrival in Ephesus and the conversation he had with some of the disciples he found there. And then we'll move on to Romans and what God teaches us through his apostle about our experience of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And it happened that while, Paul, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Paul finds some disciples in Ephesus, but he's uncertain about whose disciples they are. Now, in our context, when we hear the word disciple, we automatically tend to think of followers of Jesus. But in Paul's day, disciple was a term used for anyone who had devoted themselves to a particular teacher or rabbi. And from the Gospels, we know that there were lots of different groups of disciples, disciples of John the Baptist, disciples of the Pharisees, disciples of Moses, and yes, disciples of Jesus. So whose disciples were these men in Ephesus? Well, to determine whose disciples they were, and especially whether or not they were disciples of Jesus, Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, when we're sussing out whether someone's a Christian or not, we tend to ask other questions. Oh, how did you become a Christian? Or what do you think of Jesus? Or what church do you go to? But for Paul, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe was the obvious question. The question that gave the clearest answer about their relationship to the Lord Jesus. Now, why is that? Uh, you heard the answer in Romans 8. Paul says there... Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ 
does not belong to him. You can't be Christ's, you can't be his follower without the spirit of Christ. In the same verse referred to as the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You see, the Father and the Son are one in the giving of the spirit and so the Holy Spirit can be referred to as the spirit of God or of Christ. You can't be Christ without the spirit. So to work out whether these were disciples of Jesus and not some other teacher, Paul rightly asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? If the answer was yes, he would know they were disciples of Jesus. If the answer was no, he knew they needed to hear about Jesus. Now, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed is a question we can still ask of anyone whose relationship to Jesus we're trying to discover even if, let's face it, we might feel uncomfortable if we are asked that question ourselves. But it's the right question. Why? Why can we ask it and expect any believer in Jesus to say yes? Because let's face it, it's an extraordinary question. Did you receive the Spirit of God, a new power of life from outside you, a transforming power? So why is that the right question? Well, firstly, it's a right question because it actually says something about Jesus. You see, we can ask this question because of Jesus' achievement in his life, death and rising. Jesus is the eternal son sent into the world by the Father to save his people. He came to bring the promised salvation of God, as we've heard in Matthew, the reign of God. As we learn from the prophets, central to that salvation is the pouring out of God's spirit on his people, God giving them a new heart and a new life through giving them his spirit. God has promised the coming of the spirit to his people. In Isaiah, he said, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give your heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In Joel, he says, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Fulfilling those promises, bringing the spirit was what John the Baptist explicitly promised Jesus would do a promise recorded in all the Gospels. I baptise you with water for repentance, said John, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus himself in his ministry promised to give the Spirit to all who believed in him. If anyone thirsts, he said, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this, he said, about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. The coming of the spirits, not some afterthought, but it's central to, for, to what Jesus came to do, to the salvation he brings. And we see at Pentecost, that our Lord was successful in his mission, that through his death for sin and rising to the Father's right hand, he is the one who can now give the Spirit to all who believe in him. It's Jesus' promise of the Spirit to those who believe in him that the apostles repeat 
in their preaching of the gospel from the very beginning. To those convicted of their sin in rejecting Jesus, in sharing his crucifixion, Peter says, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The apostles are clear. The Spirit is graciously given to people on the basis of faith in Jesus crucified and risen. So consider Paul when he's speaking to the Galatians who are going off track and turning to works away from faith. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing, that is hearing the gospel with faith? Oh, does he who supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is clear. The Spirit comes by hearing with faith. You see that expectation even in Paul's question in Acts 19. So Paul asking, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Ask them, believers in Jesus receive the Spirit from Jesus when they repent and believe the gospel, calling out to the Lord Jesus for the salvation he promises. Did you receive the Spirit when you believe? Now, on one hand, that's a simple question about their experience, but it says so much about the Lord Jesus. It expresses the confidence that the crucified Jesus is God's saviour, his effective saviour by his death on the cross, who through that death fulfills the promises of God to his people and brings that promised time of salvation. It tells us that Jesus is the one who has made believers fit by his death to receive the spirit which he bestows. But it is a question about experience. Of the, for the Spirit is given to all who believe in Jesus by repenting and believing the gospel of Jesus, the apostles proclaim. So it is a question about experience, and that explains Paul's response to the men's answer. Having worked out that they're disciples of John and not Jesus, he goes on and preaches the gospel to them, starting where they are at their commitment to John and their belief in his preaching. He says, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. You see, he starts where they're at. Jesus, says Paul, is the one John spoke about. And believing, John, these people now come to believe in Jesus and receive the Spirit. Here, accompanied by visible signs that confirms the fulfilment of the prophecy of John to them and to us. But elsewhere in Acts, people believe and receive the Spirit without those visible signs. The emphasis is on Jesus' promise to those who believe that he baptises all who believe in him with his Spirit. We receive the Spirit by believing the gospel of our Lord Jesus and you can't be his without the Spirit. Now we're going to go on and think about what God says is the believer's experience of the Spirit, but let's just digest that truth that you can't be a disciple of Jesus without the Spirit. You see, Christianity is not a human project. It's God's. Being a Christian is not about joining a human club 
or subscribing to a philosophy, practicing a certain morality or just adherence to a set of propositions about Jesus. You cannot make yourself a Christian. You actually have to depend on Jesus doing for you what he has promised to do. Being Christians about new life, being graciously given new life by Christ. And that means you can only be a follower of Jesus on his terms. That is repentance and faith in the gospel. Acknowledging you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and that Christ has died for your sins and risen now has authority to forgive you your sin. You can only be a Christian on Jesus' terms and by dealing with him, calling out to him because you confess he is the living Lord. It is personal. It's the Lord Jesus who gives the spirit and you cannot get the spirit from anyone but him. You cannot be a Christian without the spirit from Christ. But what if someone were to ask you Paul's question? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You see, sometimes we can know we're believers in Jesus but feel uncomfortable about answering that question. And that can especially be the case when we've grown up, say, in a Christian home and we've come to our own conviction about Jesus. You know, we know we believe and we're committed to following him. But we have friends who tell us about their own experiences of the Spirit or suggest that anyone who has the Spirit will speak in tongues or prophesy. Oh, it can also be the case if you're in a church that doesn't speak much about the Spirit. And you meet that friend and you hear those experiences and you think, I've never personally experienced anything like that. I've never seen anything like that in my church. Am I missing out on something? Or am I just kidding myself about being Jesus' follower? We can ask those questions, can't we? So what does God in his word teach us about the experience of the Spirit in a believer's life, in the lives of all believers? How is the experience, how is the Spirit experienced? How can we know we have the Spirit? Now that is a question worth asking. And to answer it, let's now turn to Romans 8 and then Romans 5 to highlight four aspects of the Spirit's work. There's more, but just today, four aspects of the Spirit's work that we can and should be conscious of in ourselves as if we're believers. And if talking about this thing, these things unsettle you, well, come and talk. But I want to highlight these so that we know them for ourselves and we can give ourselves to this work of the Spirit in us. Now, as you heard in the reading, uh, uh, Paul has been contrasting uh, the flesh and the Spirit. So he said, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul has been developing a contrast between, in a sense, the flesh and the spirit, two opposing ages, two sources of life. The flesh is the life and society we are, every one of us, born into as descendants of Adam. 
It's the sphere of rebellion against God where sin dwelling in us takes even the good commandments of God to turn us against God, to provoke us to disobey God. So the flesh is the sphere where sin and death rule and they have no hope. Those in the flesh cannot please God. There is no hope while you remain in the flesh. But believers in Jesus, Paul has said earlier in chapter 8, are delivered by Jesus from the flesh to live in the spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. And Paul is now going to go on and talk about what that means for us to have received the spirit as believers in Jesus, what it means to have the spirit of Christ dwelling in us, taking up abiding residence in our lives. And so he says, firstly, the spirit is experienced in a new direction and a new power in our lives. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So Paul first speaks of this new power the spirit gives us to live a life pleasing to God. By the Spirit we can, he says, put to death the deeds of the body. Now we might have expected Paul to say at this point, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. But he says body here. Now that's not because he's thinking only of what we might think of as bodily sins like sexual immorality or gluttony. No, the body here stands as it does in 7.24 where Paul cries out, O wretched Man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The body stands here for the life of this present age, the life that is still subject to death because it is ensnared in sin. But, of course, where flesh is abstract, using the body reminds us that the possibility of sin, even when we're believers, is still close to us while we're in these bodies, always engaging through these bodies in a world subject to sin. And so the deeds of the body that he's talking about include not only indulgences of our physical appetite, but things like pride and bitterness, lust for power or recognition. And there's never a time in our lives when we do not need to be putting to death the deeds of the body. And now, says Paul, by the power of the Spirit, we can. We are not slaves to sin. Now notice, we are not passive in this work of putting sin to death. The power is the spirits, but we must give ourselves to it. You put to death. If by the spirit, you put to death. And so we have to consciously, as Paul says in Galatians 5, march in step with the beat of the spirit's drum, even as the spirit bears his fruit in our lives. But we now have a new power to put sin to death. And because the Spirit gives us a new heart as well as a new power, we want to march to the Spirit's drum. Believers want to turn away from what displeases God and do what pleases him. Now, Paul talks of this new heart here as in terms of being led by the Spirit, all who are led by the Spirit. That is, Being led by the Spirit is the Spirit giving us and sustaining us in a new direction in life where we go towards the Spirit's goal. 
Being led by the Spirit is not talking about occasionally being prompted by God to do this or that. You know, people sometimes use that language of being led in that way. You know, I was led by the Spirit to go and talk to this or that person. Now, that may be or may not be our experience, but it is definitely not what Paul is talking about here. Being led by the Spirit here speaks of having the direction of the whole of our life determined by the Spirit, of having our minds set on the things of the Spirit, on the things of God. Being led by the Spirit is being given that new heart in which God has placed his law, a will that is now moved to do God's will. So how do we experience the presence of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit in us? by wanting to live God's way, by being serious about pursuing holiness, by living a life of daily putting sin to death, of daily repentance from sin and obeying Jesus. And if that is your life, that is proof and evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life. But recognise that that commitment to live God's way may actually also be experienced in your life in guilt when we do sin. Oh, a grief at falling again. Oh, experienced in terms of the consciousness of an uncomfortable struggle with our old sinful desires, whether it's anger or envy, lust or pride. But that struggle is not evidence that we are not believers. It is evidence that we are. It's evidence that the spirit in us will not let us be content with not living God's way, will convict us so that we turn away from those sins. And we're assured, even if sometimes we do not feel it, but by the power of the Spirit, we will see progress in dealing with that sin. So when believers are tripped up in sin, we confess and we know forgiveness because we have the Spirit on the basis of Jesus' atoning work. And by that same Spirit, we resolve again to live God's way, confident in progress because we are confident in the Spirit's power. And if we're addicted to a sinful pattern of living, well, we'll seek help, yes, from others to break that addiction. And by God's Spirit, we can actually engage in that battle with hope. So we experience the Spirit in terms of a commitment to holiness, a new power and a new direction in life. And secondly, we experience the Spirit's dwelling in us by an assurance of our relationship with God as our Father. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Having said those led by the Spirit, sons of God, Paul tells us, that this is something, a truth, a reality that the Spirit witnesses to with our spirit, a relationship that is that we are led to be consciously aware of. You see, the Spirit tells us God's gracious adoption of us as his children through faith in Jesus is not just an idea, it is the experiential reality of every believer. By the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Now think of the wonder of this. The living, almighty, holy God is now not a fearsome judge to hide from, but our Father. 
to whom each of us, each believer, can come as a little child with trusting confidence, not fearing rejection or disinterest, but confident of interest, care and love in the universe. You, believer, can come to this eternal God as your Father and know he cares for you. More, the Spirit prompts us to address our God by the same address our Lord Jesus used in the garden. Remember, he said there, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Let this cup pass from me. And so we're assured by the Spirit's witness that as his adopted children, we have come to share in the relationship of our Lord Jesus, God's true son, with his father. It's this relationship of children to their father that actually gives shape to the believer's whole life on this earth as a life of loving and trusting the Father and doing his will. That's the Christian life. Now, we could never know this trusting confidence, the comfort, the assurance of being adopted as God's children if adoption were just a doctrine we subscribe to or an idea about our idea used to speak of our relationship with God or if it was something we were told by others to be the case. That would not give us that assurance, would it? But by the work of God's Spirit dwelling in us, that comfort and assurance is ours, known in our spirits with an immediacy that brings us confidently into the living God's presence, a deeply felt assurance and reality. And by this work of the Spirit, we're also assured that we are heirs of the Son, that like the Old Testament people of God, we will come to share in the inheritance God has prepared for his people, provided we are true children by being like the Son in this life, like the Son by sharing in his suffering. Now, Paul says that not to add an extra condition. No, this is just the reality of being God's children in the world. Suffering is the lot of all God's children in a world that's determined to disobey God and that resents God's rule. Those who, like Jesus, love the Father and do his will no matter what, will suffer as he has suffered. But knowing we are God's children transforms our suffering into a cause of joy. Our suffering becomes an assurance that suffering like him, we will also share in his glory. Beloved, right, Peter, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Believers experience the Spirit's indwelling presence in a new direction and power of life and in an assurance of our adoption in the cry of our heart to God our Father. And thirdly, the Spirit, says Paul, makes us long for the fullness of what we've been promised, for that glorious inheritance, a permanent place in the presence of God, in the presence of our Father. Paul continues, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits, the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, 
the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says that the whole creation, subjected to decay and death, to weakness and futility, groans as it waits for liberation. And in our bodies, he says, we groan too, because we know that decay and death, and isn't that true? We know it. We know that decay and death only too well. Oh, and we know the moral and physical weakness that is attendant on being in our bodies. And so, yes, believers also groan under the oppression of death and decay, groan in our frustration at our weakness, a groaning which is a cry to God to free us from that oppression by bringing the fullness of the freedom he has promised us. And that fullness, he says, is the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection when we'll never again know death or pain or tears or sin. But what prompts and sustains our turning to God is not absence but presence, our present possession of the Spirit. We ourselves who have the first fruits, says of the Spirit, but it's better the first fruits, that is the Spirit itself, grown inwardly. Uh, first fruits is the first part of the harvest that guarantees the rest will come. It's a word that emphasises the unbreakable connection between the beginning of something and the end. And the first fruits of the Spirit's not speaking of enjoying now only some of the Spirit with more of the Spirit to come. No, the Spirit itself is the first fruits, the first part of all that God has promised of the end time salvation. Resurrection, judgment, the vanquishing of all opposition, the gathering of God's people, the new heaven and earth. The Spirit is the first part of those promises that makes all the rest certain. Uh, Paul's other way of speaking of the connection between our experience of the Spirit now and all that God has promised his people is to describe the Spirit as the deposit that guarantees all that is to come. We groan because in the Spirit we already now possess the beginning of the fulfilment of salvation and that possession makes our longing even more intense for having the Spirit. We know the unseen future, the not yet of Jesus returning glory and our resurrection for which we hope is certain. And even adoption, says Paul, shares in the now and the not yet. The Spirit assures us, as we've heard, that we are already adopted as God's children. And the Spirit also teaches us that we have not yet come to the fullness of that adoption, which will be known only when we're enjoying our inheritance in our risen bodies in the new heaven and earth, in the presence of the Father and the Son. 1 John also speaks of that reality, the now and the not yet. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. In risen bodies like his, we'll be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Prompted by the present possession of the Spirit, we want the fullness. We want the end to the frustration and oppression of moral and bodily weakness and we groan inwardly. Now this spirit-prompted longing, which I hope you know, 
is such a valuable work in the lives of the believer. It reminds us of the world's reality, that it is not as it should be. And we don't have to pretend that this is the best it gets. And so this reminder protects us from the disappointment many know of unreal expectations about this life. Oh, and this spirit-prompted longing also reminds us that this world is not all there is. And so it helps us to not love this world or be mired in the cares of this world by reminding us of our goal in the depths of our soul This spirit-prompted longing keeps us moving towards that goal, keeps us oriented to our hope, the hope that's been there from the day we first believed. In fact, the spirit's real presence sustains our hope, for though unseen, we know by the spirit's presence that it is certain. And so in a sense, you can think that this spirit-given longing puts the helmet of of hope on our head, The Spirit enables us to endure, to bear up under the oppression of death and decay and frailty and so come to our goal. And Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that we endure confidently because by the Spirit we are assured of the Father's love for us even in our suffering. Not only that, he writes, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And what the Spirit's presence does is assure us of the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for us while we were sinners. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ offered us. The Spirit's very presence assures us of the truth of that and that Jesus' death was effective because that's how the Spirit can come to us. And so we know, whatever our trial, by the Spirit's presence, that we are loved and our hope is not a delusion and will not disappoint us, so we endure with hope. How is the presence of the Spirit experienced in every believer? A commitment to a holy life seen in daily putting sin to death. An assurance in our hearts that the eternal holy God is our Father, so that we live as his children. A life oriented towards and longing for all that God has promised us. A life of hope, even as we feel the not rightness, the decay, the death and frailty of this world. A life kept in the knowledge of God's love for us, in the death of Christ for us. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're not a believer, perhaps you're attracted, say, to Christian morality or to the person of Jesus or even the hope that you see in believers' lives. Well, you should hear, you can't live the Christian life without receiving the Spirit from Christ. You can't have the assurance and comfort of knowing you're God's child without the Spirit from Christ. You can't have a sure hope without the Spirit from Christ. But he will give his Spirit to all who repent and believe the gospel his apostles preached, that he's died for our sins, was buried, and that God has raised him from the dead. He will give his spirit to you if you call out to him, confessing your sin, asking forgiveness, and asking for the new life he gives. 
Jesus lives. He hears. If you want to know more, come and talk. And if you're a believer, don't be confused or uncertain about the Spirit's presence in your life. The Lord Jesus is a great and faithful Saviour. And his great gift to all who trust him is the Holy Spirit. He baptises all who are his with his spirit. Know that and give yourself as a true child of God to the Spirit's direction of your life. Give yourself in the power of the Spirit to cultivating a life that says no to sin and yes to doing the will of your Father, even if in our world that means suffering. Give yourself to nurturing in yourself the Spirit's fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. These should be and should be seen in the lives of believers. And come to our God, as the Spirit assures us, he is our Father. Come in humble dependence every day. And let the Spirit make you long for the fulfilment of our hope as one to whom God has already in the presence of the Spirit guaranteed that fulfilment. Know the work of the Spirit in your life. Give yourself to it. Rejoice in it. And in all this, praise our great saving God, Father, Son and Spirit, for the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit that reminds us that Jesus' death is effective in dealing with our sin, that tells us that God is determined to save his people, that he hasn't left us alone to fend for ourselves, but is always active to will and to work his good purpose in us. Praise our saving God. And praise him for a salvation that's not impersonal or leaves us unchanged. No, a salvation that is actually being given a new life caught up in an eternal relationship of love with the living and loving Holy God, our Father, who pours his love into our hearts by his Spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your great mercy, we pray that each one of us who trusts in Jesus would know for sure the wonderful gift Jesus has given to us of his spirit, would know the work of the spirit in our lives, would know in our deepest hearts that crying out to you, our God, our Father. We pray that we would know that work for ourselves and be assured of it and in your mercy give ourselves to it so that we live as true children of God in this age and so that we long, long for the fulfilment of all you promised and live with enduring hope. We pray that the Lord Jesus would be glorified through the work of his spirit in the lives of each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.